One of my favorite guests on the program in this hour. Very glad to have him with us. International editor of Newsweek, also author, and his newest book is titled The Sphinx, Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationist, and the Road to World War II. His book is available at norton.com forward slash books and also at amazon.com. Nicholas Wapshot, Happy New Year, my friend. Hey, buddy, glad to have you back on the show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Leslie. It's always a great treat to talk with you. You know, today there are people celebrating in Seattle and many other places as there are higher wages with an increase in minimum wage for uh, people that have been working as low-income workers and continue to be low-income workers, but the wages are going up. And, you know, there there are a lot of arguments for increasing minimum wage across the board, and one is that it leads to higher productivity. And I got to say, in my experience as a small business owner, I've seen that in two businesses I've I've either owned myself or owned a part of. Um, uh, Talk to us about that because, you know, when when people have lower income and they're given higher wages, there's more to this than just they'll have more money to pay their bills and put food on the table. Yeah, the common wisdom and the usual conservative argument against things like minimum wages uh, or paying people properly is that there's only a certain amount of money in the pot to pay for wages in any business. And if you pay some people more, that means you're going to hire people less or you're going to take on people less often. Uh, But there's a very interesting uh, new paper that's come out of all places. It's not somewhere that I usually look, and it's certainly not somewhere that your readers would look normally. The Peterson International Institute for Economics has brought together all of the evidence together in one place, explaining exactly why, if you pay people more, contrary to the common wisdom that it's actually bad for the economy or bad for business, it's actually good for people. And it sort of stands for reason. They go through ten good, clear reasons why it should be the case. And if you think about it, it is every bit as commonsensical as the opposing view. For instance, if you pay people more, uh, they work harder. I mean, it seems an obvious thing to say, but it's absolutely true, isn't it? And when there are a number of studies where they've actually worked this out, the fact is that if people uh, get a better packet at the end of the week, then they do actually put more into their job. That's hardly surprising, so obvious it makes sense. Uh, it also means that there's – and Henry Ford was very quick on this. Henry Ford, who actually, you know, made – the whole of America, a car-driving democracy, and he was the guy who really put assembly work, assembly line work to the test. He made cars, instead of making each car separately, he gave everybody one job, and then he had a, a, a line where everybody did the bits and pieces. He found that if he didn't pay people well enough, he spent most of his time hiring new people and retraining them. And then as soon as they got skilled and trained, they'd work for him for a while. But if somebody came along with more money, then they would go and work for them instead. And you have to hire them all over again or hire new people all over again. And this is another thing. That's a very, very good point. If you want longevity, um, you know, because especially in entry-level positions, it can be in many industries a revolving door. Absolutely. So what Henry Ford did, and it astounded everybody. I mean, all of, all of those great uh, rail magnets and so on who'd made themselves super rich by uh, being mean to their workers said, you, you, you're going to spoil it for the rest of us if you start paying too much. And he said, well, that's your business. In my business, when I go to get a good worker and train them properly and get them uh, on the assembly line and I'm happy with them, I then give them the, the best wages in, in the whole of the industry. And uh, so 
Lo and behold, the Pizza Report says exactly that. Higher wages leads to lower turnover, reducing the cost of hiring and training new workers. Again, a simple, obvious fact, but one that is very rarely uh, brought into the argument about minimum wages. Which are, uh, the Conservatives are very uh, clever because they manage to sort of oversimplify things to such an extent that uh, when people talk about these subjects, they just rattle off, you know, the, the glib uh, uh, reasons for why it isn't a good idea to treat people properly. But uh, thank goodness there are economists who spend all their time trying to put these ideas to the test and come up with uh, the sort of thing that you and I would necessarily imagine was going on. They actually prove it, proof positive that this is the way to do things. Uh, can you imagine that if you, uh, if you pay people higher, they're nicer to the customers? Uh, it's the people who, if you go into a store and they don't treat you very well, you work it out. They're probably not being paid very much. They are sort of irritated to even be there. If you pay them properly, then they take pride in their work and they're nice to their customers and people spend more. It's also straightforward, isn't it? Uh, there's less absenteeism. If you pay people, they turn up. Hey, well, I'm blown. If, if you don't pay people enough, they think, is it worth me going today? I think I've got a bit of a sniffle. I'm not going to go into work. Uh, so... I'm glad to say that it's one of those great canards that the minimum wage is bad for the economy and it's bad for business, and it just ain't the case. And, uh, and I'm grateful to the, the people at Peterson for having done an enormous amount of work. You can find it online. Just put it in the Peterson Economics Institute, and there on the list of their recent publications, you'll find the whole report. And what's more, uh, bang to rights. I mean, if you've got a phone and you're in an argument with somebody about this, you could call that up, and every last fact relates to a PDF, which shows you the great, uh, you know, years' worth of data brought together. That's one of the great things today, too, isn't it, that we are so data-driven with our arguments because data is available, and it's at our fingertips. I mean, everybody can Google. Everybody can go online and say not only who was in Casablanca or when was Casablanca made. You can also beat them to the punch with political arguments like this by coming up with some cold, hard facts which usually contradict that sort of prejudice that people have, uh, usually learned from someone else, but uh, people who have misled them. Oh, most definitely. And when you speak of uh, economics, uh, economists have been arguing this for years. As a matter of fact, Alfred Marshall, nice name, uh, father of modern economics, no relation, argued almost 125 years ago, quote, any change in the distribution of wealth, which gives more to the wage receivers and less to the capitalist, is uh, is likely other things being equal to hasten the increase of material uh, production. Uh, since then, econom economists have compiled this kind of data, like you're talking about, that Peterson did, that basically paying higher wages in the long run, and sometimes in the, in the short run, generates savings, that it's actually profitable to pay your worker higher wages. Absolutely the case. And, and the, the other thing, of course, is it's actually very good for the economy. One other thing about the great disparity between the, the super-rich and the rest of us, uh, and it's never been wider than it is today. You'd think that back in the dark days of the 19th century it would be out of scale. When you look at some of the – you go to some of like Newport, Rhode Island, and see the so-called cottages they bought for uh, – they built for each other and built for themselves to party in, in, the, in the seaside. These are castles, huge things. You'd think that that was the bad old days. But today, actually – In Newport, Rhode Island? I got married at Rosecliff Mansion in Newport. I know those castles. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> what a sweet place. I wish, I wish I'd been invited. Oh, the, I didn't uh, know you then, honey. I would have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the, 
if you put, uh, if you give rich people even more money, they don't do anything very useful with it. I know that sounds stupid, but the fact is, there's a limit to how much people can can spend. Uh, Ronald Reagan was always talking about the trickle down economy. Give let rich people have a lot of money, and they'll spend and spend and spend. Uh, well, the fact is they don't. On the whole, they invest in things like houses for each other. So if you go out to the Hamptons, all of the houses are at sort of rocket prices, but actually what they're doing is lodging money. It's just a place to put your money, knowing that you'll be able to pick it up later if you need it. If you give money to low-paid workers, lo and behold, they spend it. And that's what this economy needs right now. We need people to spend uh, I know that we should also save, too. That's certainly a prudent thing to do. You ought to look for, you know, the bad times when you're unemployed. Uh, look for, out for your old age when you'll need money and you probably won't be able to work as hard and all the other things. But the fact is that if you, in general, give people more money, you can do it in two ways. You either put more money in their pay packets, that is, the employer pays them, or you can cut taxes and it amounts to the same thing. Uh, then people, on the whole, spend their money. At the moment, everybody's getting a great tax break, effectively, from... Gas prices, gas prices have halved. With, you know, it's astonishing what's happening. Phoenix, Arizona, less than two bucks a gallon. Let's go to a caller on line three. Michael in Long Island has a question or comment for our guest, Nicholas Wapshot. Michael, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Leslie, and good afternoon, Nicholas. Uh, Hello, I'm enjoying listening to your analysis. The the only thing is that I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it is, is listen, I, I it's been a while since I was in school, but I did take economics class. And my understanding is, is, listen, I think people would love to raise wages, especially small business owners and, and small businesses, but in particular. The problem is, is they're, they're having a, a difficult time passing that cost on to their customer in terms of either raising the price of their service or their products. How do you respond to that? No, I think you're quite right. If, if you've got a very small business, I think it is very difficult because all of the margins are very tight. Uh, you don't, on the whole, if you've got a very small business, hire anybody unless you really have to. Uh, and uh, it, it's true. It, it's very difficult if you have a minimum wage in those circumstances. And uh, I'm not minimizing at all the, the problem that the businesses uh, have for that. But if you look at the, the bigger companies like uh, Walmart or McDonald's or people who really do people uh, employ lots and lots of people on rock-bottom wages, they actually can pass their costs on pretty uh, well. And uh, as you see, there are benefits if you uh, – I mean, even in, if you go to a, a relatively humble job, if you're in retail or if you're in uh, a service in a restaurant or whatever, you still have to train such people. They have to come up to a certain standard. And if you uh, don't pay them enough, then they're going to wander off to someone else as soon as you've uh, uh, trained them. But I can understand that if you're running a, a very small shop making – uh, stuff and, and your margins are already pretty tight, that actually, yes, of course, uh, minimum wage uh, can be a hindrance to you. I'm just, I'm talking about overall in the economy, the, the general uh, effect of paying more people is good, not only for the individuals, but is good for businesses and is good for the economy. But it's probably more in the medium term. I can see that if you're running a small business right now and uh, you suddenly find you've got a wage bill which is up another you know, 10% or something, that you've got to try to find some savings elsewhere. And it may well be that actually you have to let somebody go because you can't pass the costs straight on. On the other hand, uh, we're at the moment with almost no inflation, which is a very awkward period. It seems a bad idea, rising prices. But actually rising prices are really quite a good thing. You should, ha should be able to pass those things on. And they, the workers will be able to pay for their goods because they are now being paid better. So... There might be a little gap where you just have to hold your breath for a little while. But uh, 
in the, in the end, what, what this uh, report says, and this is a, a bunch of really uh, tip-top economists who've actually done their homework on this, and they've looked at all the data and worked it out, it is, in general, better to pay people more than not to pay them more. Uh, absolutely. Michael, I hope that answers your uh, comment and uh, qu- response to your comment and your question. Michael, thank you for that. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the New York Police Department. They're getting back to normal. We'll talk about it with our guests and with you. You want to join us? 8886 Leslie, 8886537543. Nicholas Wapshot's our guest, international editor of Newsweek. He also is author, latest book, The Sphinx, Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationist, and The Road to World War II. Get his book on Amazon.com. And we're back on Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. Only True Democracy in Talk Radio of Four and by you, the people. Nicholas Wapshot's our guest, international editor of Newsweek, also author of The Sphinx, Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationist, and The Road to World War II. Available at Norton.com forward slash books and Amazon.com. Nicholas, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Let's get to another caller before we move on to other topics since we do have the hour. And we go to the Bronx Line 3 with Michael. Michael, good afternoon. Question or comment for our guest. Hi, how you, how's everybody? You know, the thing about the um, slowdown, first off, let's make no mistake, the slowdown as well as the police officers turning their backs on Mayor de Blasio during a funeral, or nonetheless, a funeral for their fallen comrade, all that was orchestrated by the PBA president, Pat Lynch. And after the mayor and the police commissioner expressed in so many words their disgust for the behavior of the NYPD cops and the slowdowns and the pretty much the violation of the Taylor Law. I don't know if you know about the Taylor Law, Leslie, um, but that's a prohibition of public service um, workers from striking or doing any kind of um, slowdowns, as the term has it. But all that was orchestrated by Lynch. And now there's reports that more and more police officers are really getting pissed off at the PBA president, who, in my view, is the real culprit that's throwing the cops under the bus and not the mayor. So any reaction to that? Nicholas. Ah, yeah, it's, this is a fascinating dispute. Uh, and actually, the, I don't really want to get into uh, some of the things that you've raised, just because I think that these have been well chewed over in the past. Exactly what the dispute is between the mayor and the police uh, is, and, and the circumstances that uh, came about with the, uh, the death of a fellow in Staten Island, too. And all of those things, is, I think we've been chewed over pretty well. What I'm interested about is the more general policy the, uh, when New York City was a crime-ridden place, uh, a number of think tanks set about trying to work out, is there any way that we can bring it back to some sort of uh, uh, law-abiding, uh, safe uh, place? And there's no doubt the first time I came to New York, I mean, it was a treacherous place. There were whole areas where it, it was just full of uh, people who were trying to peddle drugs to you or sell their bodies to you. It's uh, fascinating. It, in, a, in a way, I've got to regret that some of those places have gone. But the, uh, the what, two institutions in particular, the Manhattan Institute and the Hudson Institute, uh, between them tried to puzzle about this, and they came up with a notion that what the police ought to be doing is not concentrating on the big crimes and letting the small crimes look after themselves, which is just, you know, trivial crimes, graffiti, things like that. 
what they said was that there should be what was then became known as the broken window policy, and that is that you actually clamp down on all of the small things, jaywalking, cycling the wrong way up a street, which happens all the time in New York, as you know. Petty crimes like that, people who throw a stone at a window, they, everybody has to be jumped upon. If, you've got a, if you're carrying a small amount of drugs, you, you search people at random, and you, you bring all of that low-level criminality to an end. And that will cure the problem. Well, I don't know whether how much of that was responsible for bringing New York back into a more respectful place, but certainly something did happen, and it was uh, it was the change in policing which probably may may well have been the great change there, the great agent of make, making New York great again in that sense. But the interesting thing here is that the police, out of off their own bat, have decided not to pursue that course, that uh, Manhattan and Hudson Institute course by not uh, uh, imposing the full weight of the law upon trivial offenses. Uh, I guess. Well, hold that thought, Nicholas. We're going to take a quick break. I want you to finish on that when we come back. And also, we're going to talk about, uh, speaking of arrests, getting back to normal after the ambush of the two patrolmen in December. Uh, Back with you, back with our guest, Nicholas Wapshot, and more right after this. Follow him on Twitter at nwapshot, W-A-P-S-H-O-T-T. We are back on Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk Radio. Nicholas Wapshaw is our guest, international editor of Newsweek, author of The Sphinx, Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationist, and The Road to World War II, available at Amazon.com and Norton.com forward slash books. Oh, WW Norton. Yeah, I keep doing that because it's www.ww. Sorry, my apologies. WWNorton.com forward slash books. Nicholas, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Um, there, we all are familiar with the deadly ambush of the two patrolmen back uh, in December. And now New York Police Commissioner William Bratton says that arrests in the city are getting back to normal levels. There was a dramatic decrease in the arrest following that deadly uh, ambush. Um, He said that crime is trending down, arrest activity is trending up, because there was a work slowdown by not only disgruntled officers, but perhaps many officers fearful that they would be victims of such an ambush. Yeah, what this strikes me as very strange is that in order to punish the mayor, the police are following uh, a policy which actually he would like to institute, which is actually to stop policemen uh, picking up on petty crime and irritating uh, great numbers of New Yorkers by instantly assuming that uh, they, they are suspects. One of the great things that has divided this city, and one of the reasons actually Bill de Blasio got elected, was because of the cack-handedness of the police when uh, doing... Uh, arrests uh, after uh, stop and frisk. That is, uh, they would just uh, follow young people and uh, stop them, frisk them, and they would find something or other on them that they could charge, even though the crime might be minimal. And that's the thing which agitated it and helped race relations here at all. And it just strikes me, I'm just pointing out that it's ironic, maybe, at the, 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 the least, that the police, in order to hurt the mayor, actually put into, policy, put into effect a policy that he can't persuade them to follow. Uh, so that strikes me as weird. Oh. The other thing that strikes me as just as weird, by the way, is that uh, if you're a policeman, wouldn't you imagine that the first thing you should do is to maintain respect uh, among the public? And by uh, being in- immensely rude and protesting a- against the 
mayor in the way that they do, I don't think that's a good example to all of the, the kids out there who they expect to obey petty rules. If what they do is to actually, it must be a, a breach of police procedure to deliberately try to offend the mayor by turning your back on him at uh, public meetings. There, of course, there will never be any disciplinary procedures against these, these men who have protested in this way, because that's exactly the sort of policy which doesn't work if you just pick people out and say, hey, you know, here's a, a fine or, you know, go home for the week or whatever you would do to a policeman who has behaved badly. We need the police to be out there working. But it strikes me that they have, uh, I know it, it's true, the Taylor law means that actually they can't, and quite rightly, they can't uh, go on strike uh, like any other worker, because we need the police to be on 24-7. Uh, and so maybe there are only a limited uh, number of things to do. But sort of gross ho hostility against the mayor, I don't think, does the police cause any good. Uh, the, if you were to look at what that union leader has done uh, and, uh, in, in agitating uh, and causing uh, uh, an expansion of hostility against the mayor, I would say that if I was on the public relations staff of the police union or, or on the police department, I would have said that enormous damage has been done to the police during this time. Oh, I agree. Was, I mean, arrests yeah. were down 37 percent, even though the police unions have been cooperative in the recent meetings with the NYPD. Let's take some more calls. Michael was holding and had one more comment to say uh, regarding uh, the police and specifically de Blasio and uh, the uh, uh, police commissioner. Uh, Michael, uh, thank you for holding. Welcome back. And you had one more point you wanted to make on this. Yes, I'll try to go as fast as I can. The thing is that under the direction of Police Union President Patrick Lynch, um, under the past two administrations, there's been a lot of, as uh, guests have said, racial profiling, abuse towards people of color, and pretty much um, low-level income um, civilians. And the thing is, is that, you know, they were pushing, the, the police were always engaging in bullying-like tactics, and it was always Lynch, and it was always, at that time, former Mayor Rudy Giuliani with um, Commissioner Schaefer, and then former Mayor Bloomberg with then Commissioner Kelly saying, we need to stop and frisk, keep the crimes down. And you people don't know about the laws or the Constitution, and people are saying that we do know the law and the Constitution. And now you have Mayor de Blasio and Police Commissioner Bratton, who saying in so many words that they mean business, that the police job is to enforce the laws and the Constitution, but at the same time, they must, must comply with the same laws and Constitution as anyone and everyone else, that there's no one above the law. And this is what Lynch apparently is revolting against. Michael, you're absolutely, Michael, you're absolutely right on this. The, the key to the law in any land, the rule of law, so-called, is that everybody is equal in the eyes of the law. And there's no doubt in the way that the stop and frisk and the, the other measures that were brought out uh, in pre, under previous mayors has not made all New Yorkers equal in the eyes of the law. What is uh, allowed is policemen to pick and choose, uh, impose arbitrary justice, upon people they suspect of having committed a crime. And I think that's, uh, if you really want to improve uh, the relations between police and New Yorkers, one of the great things would be to stop this unnecessary antagonism. And I think that uh, Police Commissioner Bratton, by the way, is uh, very well respected. He ran New York once before. He ran Los Angeles, and he cleaned up their police department. He's a very good guy. And if the police, uh, policemen themselves uh, 
don't understand how lucky they are to have an intelligent, smart guy who's good at this sort of thing, who's good at trying to change the complexion of, uh, of, the, of a force in a big city like New York, uh, then, then they're misguided. That's all I can say. All right. Thank you. Let's go to another caller. And we go to Tamara in Joplin, uh, Missouri. Hey, jo- uh, hey, Tamara, how you doing? Good afternoon and welcome. Good afternoon to you guys. If this Bratton is such a good guy, then why did he tell the police if they didn't pick up their arrest, they were going to lose their vacation pay. Now, I'm sick of the United States arresting people and putting them in prison for petty crimes just to bolster up the bottom line of this private prison industry that gets paid billions of dollars every year to keep people in prison for petty crimes. Heck, Utah just arrested a nine-year-old boy for shoplifting a package of gum. And because his parents had no transportation to the courthouse, they issued an arrest warrant and arrested him. When did the police stop taking little kids home for stealing packs of gum and stuff like that? We have become a prison nation. Nearly 800 people are arrested per 100,000. We hold more people in prison in this country than all the other countries, including Saudi Arabia and China. We have more people in prison than China. I think it's outrageous that that police commissioner would tell the cops to pick up on the arrest or lose your vacation pay. That's wrong. All right, Tamara. Uh, Nicholas? Uh, Yeah, I think actually Bratton was probably talking about the specific, this work to rule, where they actually weren't doing what they should be doing, which is... And do you know what she's talking about? It was uh, an arrest warrant. I do, I do. Yeah, they say it was a mistake, by the way. It was Idaho. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, By the way, I I think that it's a... It's a, it is itself criminal that the United States, of all places, you know, the home of liberty, should lock so many people up for no good reason. Uh, sure, they may well have committed some crime or the other, but most of them are there for nonviolent crimes, and they're there on minimum sentences. So even if the judge thinks they shouldn't go to prison, they're obliged to send them to prison. And they're often sent to, as we know, people are sent to prison in places where they can't be visited. Uh, in New York, they're arrested in the city, but they're sent to prisons north of Albany, and their families just cannot afford to go and see them. So we're right. talking about young people being incarcerated for a very long time. It costs more uh, to send someone to prison than it sends than send them to Harvard. I mean, it's it's such a wrong use of uh, of our public funds, and it's a wrong use of scarce uh, lives to instead send them to a university for crime, which without any uh, police uh, any prison is and also they, they not only get a good education in how to be a better criminal but of course the prisons are run so horribly uh, so often as we can see from rikers island the whole thing that's spilling out in rikers island about the suicides of young people and uh, and, the, and the sexual abuse that was been going on there between prison, prison officers who are uh, selling uh, favors for sex the, the, uh, uh, 
it, it appalls me that the United States of all places should incarcerate so many more people than the rest of the world. It's not as if America and Americans are, uh, break more laws than the rest of the world. It sort of evens out, you would imagine. But in a, in a great country like this, what a waste of human uh, capital to lock up so many people. And inevitably, I'm afraid, uh, most of them are people of color. So it's even more distressing. You really have to ask if you've got a system right. If all of the people, or most of the people you're locking up, come from a very small section of the community. Uh, we're going to take a break, Nicholas. We'll be back with you and with more. And uh, one more topic we're going to talk about in the last segment coming up here on the Only True Democracy and Talk Radio. I hope you'll join us. We're going to talk about Mitt Romney. He seems to be staffing up for a presidential bid for the 2016 election, uh, crafting a run, a rational run, but... Can he win? The guy seems really good at losing, except for one time at governor in Massachusetts. We'll be back with our guest and you. Nicholas Wapshot is the international editor of Newsweek. And we're back. Nicholas Wapshot's our guest, international editor of Newsweek, author of The Sphinx, Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationist, and The Road to World War II. His book is available at www.norton.com forward slash books and also at amazon.com. Let's move to Mitt Romney. His wife said he's not going to run. I don't want him to run. I won't let him run. I think Mitt wears the pants in the family in the sense that he seems to be ignoring that, assembling a campaign team, and um, also turning to a former aide that has ties to Chris Christie to work as a liaison with the media. Um, let, let's, let's talk about the 2012 presidential nominee. Mitt Romney's clearly taking steps to run again for the White House, and even his uh, verbal uh, comments, especially, uh, you know, against, uh, you know, Jeb Bush, um, who's getting some of his money. I know, he, you know, here some former Romney donors have written checks uh, to Jeb Bush as of late. But he seems to be, you know, running or, you know, preparing to run again in 2016. I guess at least he's feeling the water. What he's not doing is allowing his uh, previous donors to move wholeheartedly over to Jeb Bush. And uh, as money means everything in these races... What he's doing effectively is saying Jeb Bush won't be able to be the candidate unless I free up my donors. And anyway, I haven't decided yet. It's been a bit early. Jeb Bush got in very early. This is a fantastic race, by the way, already. It's hugely entertaining. I'm not sure that it'll be quite as crazy as the last Republican race for the nomination, which was so entertaining. I mean, it was the best reality TV around. And it looks set to do exactly the same time, the same, same sort of thing this time. Uh, Jeb Bush, uh, very early has come out, and he's sort of, it's like spread betting. He's put a marker saying, no one will go further left than me. I will be the most electable candidate. And uh, the response is, he was hoping, I think, to just frighten off any other establishment candidate. Can't be more establishment uh, than having a name like Bush when you've got two presidents in the family already, and they're both still alive. Uh, so Jeb planted his flag out there, and I think he was expecting that Romney was uh, still licking his wounds from the last time round, but Romney obviously isn't up to that. He's, uh, you know, he's biding his time. He's thinking, even if he doesn't run, I guess what he's trying to do is to exact something out of Jeb Bush. It, it's, not, um, it's not common, but it's, it's, it's uh, not entirely unusual for a, a failed presidential candidate to run a second time. Uh, Richard Nixon, after all, did it successfully. He lost in 60, but he picked it up later in the decade. Uh, so it is possible to do it. But uh, I'm not sure 
I mean, Leslie, your judgment is, is much the same as mine, I would guess. And by the way, we, for once we share the opinion of Rupert Murdoch, who said he was a terrible candidate and uh, he would definitely lose. He won't get the nomination. In any case, if he did get the nomination, he would lose the election again because he was so bad at it. And there's no doubt that he was. He, he never looked very comfortable, did he? Uh, from all no, I think he, he wants it more than he, not, he, he wants it. You know, he wants it so bad. I think this is a guy who not, has not heard no a lot in his life. <laughs> I think that, that is the truth. The, well, I mean, this is certainly, you know, this is the, the country of, uh, of being able to, if, if only you want it enough, it will surely come true. But the fact is, like, uh, you know, all of those uh, little boys and girls who want to be singers or dancers or, or so on, you know, they get infatuated with wanting to be a pop singer or something. The fact is that there are very few people who end up doing it, and they usually have some talent, if only a talent to, uh, you know, uh, trick the market into believing that there's something special. Mitt Romney, you would guess, is, you know, not wanted on voyage. He's been tried and tested. The fact is that he couldn't beat Obama, even though Obama was running against, uh, if you remember, I mean, all the things that were said about Obama in his first term and in that election. I mean, really, the gloves came off in that election. And uh, Romney couldn't take advantage of it. He couldn't actually, in, in the end, even, even when Obama sleptwalked through one of the debates, uh, Obama still tranced him at the end. Uh, so you, even when he looks as if he could win, I don't think he can win. But it's true. Uh, this is a very rich man. I don't think anybody has said no to him lately, as you say. And uh, so all good fun, by the way, to watch. I mean, this is a good way to sort it out. The real action, of course, is going to be, uh, 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 I think what Romney is trying to do is to say, I don't believe in some of the things that Jeb Bush thinks in, which are poisonous for people in, in our own party. So we've got two races going on. First of all, you've got to pass the primaries and become the candidate, and then you've got to beat, let's assume it's Mrs. Clinton or whoever the Democrats put up. It's the first race, which is the fascinating one. How do you become a, a candidate if, like Jeb Bush, you are actually rather sensible about things like immigration and you're rather sensible about ensuring that the standards of education are common throughout the United States with the common... Uh, course thing. Uh, and that is what uh, Mitt, Mitt Romney has made absolutely plain. He doesn't believe in uh, a rational approach to immigration, and he hates the common core. So uh, that immediately uh, gives the signal to Tea Party people, and they're really the people who run the Republican Party. It, uh, it, there's a lot of money might come out of Wall Street and, the, and big business. But actually, as we know, the Republican Party has become... Uh, I wouldn't say radical, because I think that's the wrong use of the word, but uh, it's become the, the party of the grassroots, uh, more so in a way than the Democrats have ever been, uh, which is fascinating, but it is divided in two. And the Tea Party people hate people like Romney, actually, and I think that he's, what he's said is, I've learned my lesson. I won't look as rich as, as in the future, and I will hold views which are closer to your views. That is, I'm prepared to pander to you in order to get the nomination, which... Might, might work, but I think the Tea Party are really looking for someone who actually genuinely believes what they believe. So I think they're much more likely to be hankering after somebody like Rand Paul or like Ted Cruz. Uh, uh, Rick Santorum, by the way, he looks as if he's still going to get in the race, and he's tried and tried and tried. One of the things about the Republican Party is that it, there is a sort of Buggins turn. It is true of the whole history, or the recent history of the Republican Party, if you look at it uh, over the decades. The fact is that if you keep trying hard enough, eventually say, oh, well, give him a go, which is not the way to win an election, but it is the way the Republican Party, and it's sort of, there's a sort of old boys act that operates at the, at the top, the, uh, 
the uh, chambers of commerce and the uh, big business people, on the whole, uh, end up with a sort of candidate they can live with. And they will not want to live with Ted Cruz, and they won't want Rand Paul. They won't want Rick Santorum either. And I'm not sure that uh, there's any appetite for the sort of social conservatism that Rick Santorum is putting forward. But he doesn't have to please people like you and me, Leslie, does he? What he has to please is the people who actually go out and vote in a Republican primary. And they are uh, they're much more extreme than a, even a regular Republican voter is, because they actually care about it so much that they're prepared to go out on a blustery night in uh, Iowa or in New Hampshire and actually go and vote for their guy. So uh, will Romney do it? Mm, I do. <laughs> Too early to tell, but uh, the fact that he hasn't given up right now is uh, certainly a, a great sign to the rest of us that the Republicans are going to have every bit as entertaining a uh, contest this time as they did last time round. Absolutely. Nicholas, always a pleasure to have you with us, buddy. Thank you for joining us and being on early in the year 2015, and I know you'll be with us a lot more coming uh, in the year ahead. Nicholas can be found on Twitter at nwapshot, W-A-P-S-H-O-T-T. His website is newsweek.com, and his book, again, is entitled The Sphinx, Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationist, and The Road to World War II. 